And go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Gospel of John, chapter 15. Uh, as we enter into the home stretch of a series that we started way back in 2012, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. But 2012, some of you have been here that long, and, and you remember that. Back in 2012, uh, uh, Steve Doyle and I launched that series, and then Shortly after that, I ditched him and went to Alaska, and then he kept going with that series, and then I came back in 2015, and we worked on it some together, and then last year, he ditched me, and, and now, now, now we're here still in this series, and God willing, I'm going to finish this series uh, this summer. We'll see, what the, um, we'll see what the Lord does, but that is the plan, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, Home Stretch Edition, and uh, we find ourselves now in Jesus' final hours, <clears throat> and we're in the middle of His farewell discourse with His disciples just hours before His crucifixion, uh, Jesus' disciples are extremely troubled and depressed and discouraged because Jesus is telling them that He is going away, <clears throat> that He's going to die, and that one of their number is going to betray Him. Uh, another of their number is going to deny Him, and all of them are going to scatter and leave Him. And these disciples are feeling hopeless as they wonder, what in the world are they going to do without Jesus? How are they going to carry on Jesus' mission without Jesus? As a matter of fact, is there even a mission at all now? It seems all over. And Jesus' aim in this conversation is to strengthen and encourage His fearful and faint-hearted disciples. And in previous weeks, we've seen, uh, for example, in chapter 14, how Jesus has assured them that His departure is not for the purpose of abandoning them, but that instead He's going to go and He's going to wait to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. What's more, Jesus has promised them that they will never be alone because when He departs, He will send them another Helper, the Holy Spirit, and through the Spirit, Christ will be present with them always, teaching them and equipping them and strengthening them. And Jesus assures them that uh, that the mission, the work, is not over, and in fact, His disciples will do greater works than Him as we, the church, press into the world and proclaim the life-giving gospel to the nations on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. But it gets even better, uh, because moving from chapter 14 into chapter 15, and this is where we were, I guess, a couple of months ago, Jesus shares with the disciples that uh, what their relationship with Him will be like in the days ahead, after He dies and is resurrected, <clears throat> and He ascends into heaven. And He compares Himself to a vine and His disciples as branches. And as a branch bears fruit, as it stays connected to the vine, drawing life, drawing nourishment from the vine, so we as believers will bear spiritual fruit as we stay connected to Jesus, as we abide in His Word. And as we do that, His life flows into us, begins to transform us, and we begin to more and more reflect the life of Christ. So, the believer's relationship to Christ is to be a, one of absolute dependency. As Jesus says earlier in this chapter, apart from me, you can do nothing. But the implication of that is, connected to me, you can do anything that I have called you to do. And how wonderfully encouraging those words must have been to these disciples. It's not hopeless. There is life on the other side of the cross. 
Indeed, greater days are ahead. That's what Jesus is trying to tell these disciples. But there's more. As we move into this middle portion of chapter 15, Jesus is now telling us that another crucial component of His disciples' mission, of our mission as a church, is not just about our private individual relationships with Jesus, but our relationship to one another. Uh, We're not meant to be on our own. We're all in this together. And our effectiveness as the church will rise and fall based on not just our love for Jesus, but our love for one another. So if you're here this morning as a Christian, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has very important marching orders for you today. So he who has an ear, let him hear, and let's hear it together. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. This is John chapter 15, and we're starting in verse 12, and we'll read on down through verse 17. Jesus Christ says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear, spirit, uh, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word. I pray that you would help us to treat it as such. I pray that you would help us to give careful attention to the things that Christ says in these few verses. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the meaning of these words to us this morning, that we would see these words, understand them, love them, believe them, and apply them for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We all want to be loved, but very often we do not think about how we are to love others. We very often want people to do things for us and serve us and minister to us and meet our needs while devoting comparatively little thought on what we can do in loving service to others. And in our desperation to be loved, we ironically find ourselves extremely hesitant to love, because loving others involves opening up ourselves, and it involves being vulnerable. And so, on the one hand, we want love, but simultaneously we aim to guard our hearts in self-protection, which puts us at a distance from the people we want love from. And to live in that way doesn't ultimately protect your heart, it actually ruins it. C.S. Lewis writes this, that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, your heart, the point is, is that your heart becomes hard in that process of self-protection, and you become increasingly incapable of having the kind of relationships and connections you desperately crave. And not only is that kind of self-protective lifestyle damaging to your heart, it's also disobedient to the Lord. Because what Jesus is showing us in our text today is that His intention was never to leave behind a bunch of isolated, independent, disconnected Christians who are afraid of each other. Instead, Jesus is calling believers, He is calling Harbin's church, even commanding us to something better. I want you to notice that Jesus both begins and ends this paragraph with an exhortation to love. Look at verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And then go down to verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. A command from God is not a suggestion. I hope you know that. It's not just good advice. It's not something that you do whenever you feel like it. It's as, it's as binding as God's command to not kill or to not covet. And that command in verse 12 and in verse 17 are like brackets. And in between those brackets, Jesus fleshes out for us what our love for one another looks like, what love really looks like. While some people reduce love to, to mere warm, fuzzy, sentimental feelings, and others root love in romantic relationships, and still others believe that love is simply affirming somebody else, Jesus helps us here to define the love that His disciples then and now are to have for one another. So he, says, so he says in verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus' love for us defines our love for one another, and then Jesus goes on to show us how He has loved us. And one of the ways that He defines love here, one of the ways He teaches us is by showing us what love is, and the first thing we see is that love is a self-sacrificial love. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is essentially telling them, if you want to know just what kind of love I'm calling you to, you won't see a greater example of this than what you will see in just a few hours, as I will willingly give myself over to be beaten, to be tortured, to hang naked, nailed to a slab of wood as I'm sacrificing my very life for you. I'm laying down my life to preserve yours. The Apostle John writes elsewhere, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what, what does that mean? It means that you and I were under the threat of death because of our own sins. Wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And the hammer blow of God's justice loomed over our heads. Eternal death in hell would have been our destiny. And Jesus Christ, as our substitute, as our representative, lets the hammer blow fall on Him on the cross instead of us. His life was crushed so that ours could be spared. 
It's kind of like, like, that, like that soldier in battle who leaps on the live grenade to protect his friends. So Jesus himself took the blow of God's wrath to rescue us. Jesus puts himself in a difficult position. He puts himself in harm's way so that all who believe in him may not receive death but life. And so in light of that, then John writes in the very next verse in 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Friends, this is the kind of love that we at Harbin's Church are to have for one another. As Jesus willingly laid down his life for us, we are to have a willingness to lay down our lives for one another. And this is not just simply about taking a bullet for somebody. This is actually what God is calling us to is harder than that. Paul Tripp calls this kind of love a cruciform love, love in the shape of a cross. Tripp defines cruciform love in this way. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. That's really important. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Now, in light of that, how often do you ask yourself, how can I self-sacrificially love another person in this church? How can, I, how can I show cruciform love to somebody else here? How can I reach out? How can I set my own needs and comforts and preferences aside to meet someone else's needs? And in contrast, how often do you instead think about your needs and your interests? And how often are you driven by the exhortation we have in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cruciform love involves going out of your way to serve, bless, and benefit another, even at great cost and expense and even pain to yourself. Not just when it's convenient for you. Not just when it's easy for you to do it. It wasn't convenient for Jesus to be crucified. It wasn't easy for him to drink from that cup of God's wrath. But Jesus' goal was not short-term comfort. His goal was to serve you out of love. His goal was to benefit you. All of us here are very quick to serve others when it is comfortable. But most of us in this room know what it's like to have had opportunities to do something for the good of another, to love self-sacrificially, and it wasn't comfortable, and so we let that opportunity pass by. Maybe some of you even have opportunities right now going through your head. You're like, yep, Deemer, I remember that time, and I, I didn't do it. But when you give up something so that somebody else can gain and be blessed, that's cruciform love. When you're in the middle of something and a need arises, and you drop everything to meet that need, that's cruciform love. Uh, When you consider the the best interest of a fellow believer in this church as just important as your own interest, that's cruciform love. 
when you die to your own wants and desires and preferences to bless somebody else, that's cruciform love. We do not serve with the expectation of reciprocation, and we do not serve on the basis of whether or not the other person deserves it. You see, when Jesus went to the cross for you, could you reciprocate that kind of love? Was there anything you could do to actually pay Jesus back? And when Jesus went to the cross for you, were you deserving of that? You see, Jesus' love is expressed not in giving people what they deserve. That would be anger and wrath. Instead, his love is expressed in giving people what they don't deserve, which is grace and mercy. And so Jesus says to you, Harbin's church, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so we see that love is a self-sacrificial love. We also see that Jesus' kind of love is a delighting love. Because you, can't, because you can self-sacrificially love somebody in a begrudging, bitter, duty-based kind of way. But that's not the attitude that Jesus had when sacrificing himself for us. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That word friends in the original language carries the idea of beloved. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his beloved He has an affection for his friends. This is not cold-hearted duty. Jesus wasn't sitting up there in heaven thinking, well, those people down there are really bad. And well, I am the Savior after all. Messiah is in my job description. So so I I guess I better go down there and start saving some people or else I'm going to look bad. That's not it at all. That that wasn't Jesus' attitude at all. I love... Zephaniah 3.17, which really captures the essence of God's delighting love over his people, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and not save begrudgingly or angry. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Bible says Jesus was propelled to the cross for the joy that was set before him, a joy that comes in rescuing his beloved and rescuing you, his friends. And Jesus now says, you love one another as I have loved you. We can't be satisfied in this church with a a joyless, cold, begrudging kind of service. Well, I brought them a meal when they were sick. What more do they want from me? That's not cruciform love. Indeed, begrudging service, service born out of mere duty, is actually a perversion of the kind of love that Jesus is calling you to. And so do we pray regularly that God would transform our self-centered hearts that typically are joyful when people serve us, that our hearts will be changed so that we are more joyful when we serve others? Jesus says it's more blessed to give, it's a happier thing to give than to receive. I pray that God would help us to really believe that and experience that. Jesus is showing us that the root of genuine loving friendship is not mere duty, but delight. It characterizes Jesus' actions towards us, and it is to characterize our actions towards Him. That's why Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
Jesus is not saying there that your obedience earns your friendship with him. Jesus is saying instead that your obedience characterizes your friendship with him. It says you're already a friend. And the root behind our obedience to Jesus is is not duty, but it's delighting love. It's why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for Jesus fuels our obedience to Jesus. But it all started with Jesus' love for us, a delight-driven love which fueled his self-sacrifice on the cross for his friends, for his beloved. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, Harbin's Church, so love one another. But the love that Jesus has for us is not only a self-sacrificial love, it's not only a delighting love, it's also a transparent love. Look at verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. He says, I no longer call you servants. You think about what a servant does. A servant receives orders from the master, and the servant does whatever the master says, no questions asked, you just get your job done, you are simply a tool. And so the relationship between master and servant uh, is simply functional, it's simply utilitarian, where, where the master is simply asking, well, what can I get out of them? Now, it's important to recognize that elsewhere in the Bible, believers are characterized as servants, as slaves of God. And yes, we do serve God, and yes, He is our master, but Jesus in our text today is helping us to understand that the nature of our relationship with Him is of a different level and quality than your typical servant-master relationship that existed in that day. Jesus is telling the disciples, and He's telling us, that you are more than a mere tool. Our relationship is not just functional, He says. It's not merely utilitarian. You're more than a servant your friend, because masters don't share secrets with their friends. Masters don't confide in them. Masters don't open up to them. But Jesus is doing something more. Jesus says in verse 15, all that I have from my Father, I have made known to you. There's this idea here of full disclosure, of letting somebody else in all the way. There's a sharing There's an openness that constitutes the kind of friendship that Jesus has with us, his people. You see, Jesus is less like a first century slave master and more like a benevolent and wise king who comes into power and his friends rise to power with him. And the king gathers his friends and he appoints them to privileged positions and he brings them into his inner circle, his council. And the special friends of the king have access to the highest seat of power and and are privy to information that others are not. And Jesus is letting you and me into his inner circle of friends. Uh, Someone who is simply a servant has limited knowledge, but Jesus is revealing the whole story. That, That this sentiment is shown in Psalm 25. I read this earlier at the beginning of the service. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, some translations, you could translate that as saying, the secret counsel of the Lord uh, is for those who fear Him. Because the idea is that the relationship between God and those who fear Him, those who love Him, is not something casual or superficial, but instead is a relationship where secrets are disclosed, where we are being let in on things previously unknown. And Jesus comes, and He discloses to us the secrets of the kingdom. 
and the mystery of the gospel. And Jesus comes and he says to you, I'm going to tell you the whole story. I'm going to show you what's really going on. Jesus has disclosed himself. He has opened himself up. He has been transparent. He has let us in. And so for Jesus, love expressed through friendship is not some superficial sort of thing. Instead, Jesus bears his heart and his soul to us, and this is the mark of genuine loving friendship. And now Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns to Harbin's church, and he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is showing us what loving community is. It is rooted in self-sacrificial love, fueled not by duty but by delight, and it is cultivated in an intimate, transparent self-disclosure. And this is why so many people in so many churches do not experience loving community. And it's why so few people have uh, uh, experienced real friends in their lives. Because one of the scariest things in the world is transparency. When you share with someone the depths of who you are and you just kind of put it out on the table, that can be terrifying. It's easier instead to do what C.S. Lewis talked about, just to lock your heart up in a casket. And, and as a defense mechanism, people will create a fake image of themselves. And so they'll come to church on Sunday morning, and they will try to build up that image. But if your life revolves around trying to cultivate an image, you will never have real friends. There will always be this distance between you and others, and therefore you will never be able to love others as Christ has loved you. And you will not grow and flourish as a Christian without an openness with other believers, because Jesus is showing us that genuine friends tell each other what's really going on. Genuine friendship moves past superficiality and into self-disclosure. Genuine friendship prevents us from, be, uh, uh, from being in the trenches of spiritual warfare alone. And that's good, because if the Christian life is warfare, which the Bible describes it that way, if the world, the flesh, and the devil are putting pressure on us every day, which they are, if the battle is as intense as the Bible says it is, then guess what? We need each other. And part of being in the trenches together is by being involved in Christian relationships where we are real and loving and supporting and encouraging one another. Harbin's church needs to more and more grow into a church where Christians here can find other Christians to get real with, to be vulnerable with, to confess sin with to laugh with, to cry with, to pray with. Jesus is a God who bears his heart for his friends. We were made in his image, and so we will flourish best when we operate according to how he has designed us and he has created us for community. Paul, writing to believers in the book of Galatians, says, "...bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." He writes in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. James writes in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The only way that we can obey any of those verses or other scriptures like that 
is if we are open with one another, if we allow people into our lives and, and then we also take initiative and lovingly move into other people's lives. We, we need to not move away from each other, but start moving closer. One of Satan's biggest strategies against churches is to isolate believers from other believers, and he'll do it any way he can, by tempting us to be too busy, uh, by tempting us to be satisfied with superficiality and Facebook friends, uh, by fear of being vulnerable. Uh, however he does it, that's his goal, to separate believers from other believers to get us scared of each other. And what he wants is for all of us to be separate from one another, struggling in our own private little hells, isolated from each other, afraid of each other, afraid to bear our souls to one another, and then what happens? He kills our effectiveness and our spiritual growth. The Bible's calling you and me to something better. Mutual, loving friendships that are self-sacrificing, delighting, and open that will benefit and strengthen and encourage one another. Did you know that sanctification is a community project? It really is. It's not just you, God, and your Bible, but it's all of us together. That's biblical. So we see Jesus' love here as a self-sacrificial love. We see it as a delighting love, a a transparent, open love. We also see it as an unconditional love, an unconditional love. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, Jesus is not saying that the disciples didn't make a conscious, willful choice to follow Jesus. Of course they did. But Jesus is showing us here that the reason why any of us have a relationship with God is not because we initiated the relationship, but because He did. We didn't come after God. He came after us. And He came after us in spite of who and what we are. The disciples were not great people. They were not worthy people. They were not intrinsically holy people. They were selfish. They were ignorant. They were dysfunctional. They were sinners. Jesus says, I know all of these things about you. I know that you have a track record of sin and rebellion against God. And in spite of all of your faults and all of your problems and all of your warts and dysfunction, I'm coming after you anyway. I chose you anyway. I know, disciples, that in a couple of hours... In my moment of great need, when the authorities come to arrest me and torture me, that all of you are going to run away from me and abandon me and stab me in the back. I know the wrong you've done, and I know the wrong that you will do, and I have sought you out, and I have chosen you, and I have befriended you anyway. Jesus' love is not conditional. It's not a friendship based on how well they perform for him or how much good he thinks that they will do for him. It's based on unconditional love. And it's exactly the same way with you. If you're sitting here this morning as a Christian, the Scripture says this about you in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus says to us this morning, as I have loved you, so you, Harbin's church, love one another unconditionally. And that means 
seeking out and serving others in this church who annoy you, irritate you, have sinned against you, have insulted you, have hurt you, have disappointed you, and whom you think may disappoint you again. It does not mean exclusively seeking out those in church that you like, that you feel good about, people that you approve of, who always do good to you, and who you know will love you back. That's not cruciform love. Jesus didn't lay down his life for lovely, lovable, deserving people. He laid down his life for quite unlovely and very undeserving and very, uh, people who are very ugly inside, like you and me. And nevertheless, nevertheless, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to get our act together and measure up to some sort of standard before he reached out in love to us. That kind of unconditional love needs to be at the heart of our relationships in this church. Because if it's not, our church will eventually wither and die, and it will not bear spiritual fruit. Remember I quoted last week from the book of Revelation and Jesus' warning to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you guys aren't loving, and if you don't repent, I'm, I'm going to remove your lampstand, I'm going to shut this church down. We need to take that seriously. Very often, Christians have some sort of naive vision of what, of, of what the church should be, where it's supposed to be a kind of utopia, where everyone is just always getting along, and there's just peace and harmony all the time, and, and, and they, they have this idealistic dream of what community should, should look like, and really what they have in mind is not the church, it's heaven, and we ain't there yet. But they come to church with, with these idealistic notions, and then, and, and then we do that, and then we get let down, and we get disappointed, and, and we quit the church, and, and maybe we even move to a different church, and we impose our idealistic vision there. And, and things go good for a while, but eventually we are let down and disappointed again, and so then we move on to another church. And sometimes people who do that, who act in that way, are upset because they feel like they are not being loved, while not seeing that their rejection of people who aren't living up to their standards of what community should look like is a failure on their part to love their brothers and sisters unconditionally. That is an interesting irony. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, wrote that the person who loves their dream of community the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. In other words, if you want to help cultivate a deeper and more powerful experience of community in the church, your focus needs to be not on what others do for you or what they're not doing for you, and instead needs to be on unconditionally loving those around you. In other words, we don't want to treat people as, as utilitarian. Well, how useful can you be to me? Loving community is not you deciding what other people should be doing for you. 
That's not loving one another, that's loving self. Loving community is loving as Jesus loves, who loves in spite of the failings and shortcomings and sinfulness of his friends. Some of you in this room have people you need to seek out and start administering cruciform love to. People who have wronged you, people who have offended you, irritated you, let you down, disappointed you, whatever. Maybe there are people sitting nearby you, in front of you, or even next to you. And you have resisted the call of Jesus on your life to love that person as Jesus has loved you. It's time to begin moving forward in a cruciform love, starting at about 15 minutes when I dismiss you. But there's another aspect of Jesus' love for us that should inform our love for one another, and we're closing in on the end of this message, but it's a missional love. So we have a self-sacrificial love, a delighting love, a transparent love, an unconditional love, and a missional love, having to, a love having to do with mission. Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That word appointed is often used in connection with being set apart by God for a particular purpose or a particular mission. And in Jesus' final words to his disciples, the focus is that his disciples testify to the truth of the gospel of Christ, that they bear witness about Jesus and how they live and the message that they preach and how the disciples treat one another. Everything about the disciples' lives is driven by that mission. The friendship that Jesus has with his disciples is not a friendship rooted in mere sentiment. It is bound up in this amazing mission, this incredible purpose of reaching the world for Jesus through the power of the gospel. And Jesus is so committed to helping us succeed in that mission that he will give us anything he can to help us flourish. And that is why he says in verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That promise is not a blank check that you ask for a Lamborghini and God gives it to you. The context of this promise has everything to do with the mission. It has everything to do with the advance of the gospel through the earth. Anything that you need to fulfill your part in that mission, all you have to do is ask. And God will supply it to you. Because your relationship with Jesus is connected with and bound up with this mission that he has for you. And Jesus turns to Harbin's church and he says, as I've loved you, so you love one another. You and I tend to root our friendships in common interests and common likes and dislikes and personality types and hobbies and in common stages of life. And there's nothing wrong with that natural affection and affinity that we have for those who are similar to us. But if that's all we base our friendships on, then our church will be very cliquish and very exclusive. But if we are all disciples of Christ, then guess what? We have a common interest and bond that is deeper than hobbies and personalities and stages of life. We are instead bound together in this larger gospel mission, this common cause to testify and bear witness to Jesus in Atlanta and beyond. And our friendships need to be rooted in that reality more than, oh, he likes football and so do I. If we base our friendships exclusively on those things, the church will always be fragmented and divided. But if the mission 
of the advance of the gospel and the bearing of spiritual fruit is what binds us together, then we don't need to find common ground in other things to experience loving community. We instead can grow together in love as we are on mission together. Jesus' message for us this morning is that we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That means we are to love one another uh, self-sacrificially. That means our love is not to be duty-driven but fueled by delight. That means our love is to be a transparent and unconditional love. It means that our loving friendships are to be grounded in and driven by the common purpose to testify to the world about Jesus and his gospel. What would happen to Harbin's church if our love in all of those areas increased, if we were able to better love in all of those ways? What would happen to our relationships? How would marriages be transformed? How would relationships between parents and kids be changed? How would relationships between you and people in this room be different? The ramifications of a love transformation in our church are huge, and not huge just for us personally, but for our community and beyond. Jesus constantly reminds us that how you and I treat one another has everything to do with the success of our mission in testifying to the world the truth about Jesus and the gospel. And so uh, a couple of chapters back in John 13, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in John 17, and we'll break this down more in a few weeks when we get there, in John 17, Jesus prays that we, the followers of Christ, would be in loving unity with one another. To what end? He says in 17:23, so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you love me. That's what Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying, let their unity be to such a degree that the world will know, Father, that you have sent me and that I've loved them. And so the point is, is that your love for people in this church, our love for one another has radical evangelistic implications. We talk about how we want to reach this community to Christ, community for Christ, but how serious are we? What lengths will we go through to bear witness for Jesus in this town? Will we verbally preach the gospel to other people? Well, we should. We need to. Will we lovingly serve others in this town in Jesus' name? We should, and we better. But folks, if we do not love one another right here as Jesus has loved us, nobody is going to hear our message. Because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Folks, we can preach all we want to lost people in this community, but our lovelessness will drown out our message, and the call to love starts right here among us. If we aren't loving one another self-sacrificially, with delight, with openness, unconditionally, what kind of message do we send to the world? There's much at stake, and there's much to gain. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, the first application step for you is to become a friend of God. God offers that to you. 
God has proven his love for you by sending Jesus to die on a cross to pay for sins. God extends his hand in friendship to you this morning. Will you receive that friendship by placing your faith in Christ right now? If you are here and you are a believer, my encouragement to you this morning is to obey the word of your Lord and friend, Jesus Christ, and to love others in this church as Jesus has loved you, and then watch what happens. And if you struggle to love, and and I think we all do to one degree, right? If you struggle to love, I want us here in a moment to go before the Lord together in prayer. Because Jesus has promised to give us whatever we need for the accomplishment of our mission. He he said that. He made those promises. That whatever you ask in my name, he he will give you. And as we ask according to the will of the Father, he will give. And so we need to take Jesus up on that promise, don't we? And pray to to that end with expectation that he will supply our needs, including the need to love. And so we will pray and we will ask God to reveal to us in ways that we have personally fallen short, ways maybe that you've been loveless towards others in this church, ways where you've not loved unconditionally, ways where you've not served with delight, ways where uh, you have out of self-protection maybe thrown up walls, which kills loving community. And maybe even as you pray, there's going to be faces of people that come to mind, faces even of people in this church, people you fail to love. And as you pray, ask God for forgiveness and receive God's cleansing for those sins that comes through Christ's blood. Because because remember, our hope ultimately is not based on, rooted in how well we love, but in Jesus' love for us and what He has done for us. But as we confess those sins, then let's repent and let's ask God to further transform our hearts and make our hearts more like His heart so that we can better love others as Christ has loved us. So we're going to enter into a time of just a minute of silent prayer and and reflection as we all go to the Lord. And then after about a minute of of quiet prayer before God, I'll close us all uh, in in prayer. So let's, let's go before the Lord now.